Welcome to another Q&A episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. In today's episode, Greg and I answer listeners' questions about fasted training, peaking for powerlifting meets, recovering from a diet, training frequency, and much more. To finish off the episode, Greg and I discuss how much evidence we need to see before we start implementing a new strategy into our own training or coaching. If you want your questions answered on a future episode, be sure to go to tiny.cc slash sbsqa, or you can click on the link in the episode description. As always, thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler. I'm joined today by my temporary guest host, Greg Knuckles. Thanks for having me back on. Absolutely. So before we get into the questions and the answers today, because it is a Q&A episode, I do want to briefly make an announcement here. Sneak peek for next week's episode. Next week, we have a great interview with Alex Colliari-Turner. He is working on a PhD over in the UK, um, and he's currently recruiting subjects for his study, and it is an extremely cool study, so we wanted to help him out with recruitment. Now, his project is going to teach us a lot about muscle memory, and more specifically, he's interested in looking at how muscle myonuclei numbers change when people use steroids, and if those changes uh, revert back to normal after they stop using. So... um, What they're looking for are people who are either current or past steroid users, um, totally non-judgmental, totally confidential, and in many cases, they're able to cover your travel your travel costs if you're traveling within Europe. And and they will cover your travel costs if you're within the UK. Absolutely. So the reason we're mentioning this is for their 2019 round of data collection. Their final uh, data collection dates are October 26th through 28th. So these are the last opportunities for current and past steroid users living within Europe to get involved uh, in 2019. Now, they will be doing some sampling in 2020. So even if you can't make those October dates, you'll still want to get in touch with Alex. um, and, And the way to get in touch with him is using the email address in the episode description. So if you're interested, if you think you might qualify, shoot Alex an email. And see what he has to say. And if that's too much trouble, you can just message me on Facebook or Instagram and I can put you in touch with Alex. Yeah, you can message Greg about this. You cannot message me about keeping Greg on as some type of permanent co-host because that's just not going to happen. You can and you should absolutely message Eric about that. And in fact, uh, you should probably do so multiple times a day. Nope, those messages do a lot more harm than good, as I've said many, many times. All right. So let's go ahead and get into this Q&A episode. Uh, Question we're kicking off with is for Eric. Uh, Eric, uh, again, to be clear, Trexler, not Helms. Uh, Eric, does, um, is there any reason to do fasted cardio for performance and not for weight loss? I think the assumption behind this question being that maybe you're producing more ketones and that will help fuel uh, cardio performance during during a fasted state. Yeah, so here we go. Um, fasted training. I didn't realize that this there, there's a lot of people that are really, really, really adamant about fasted training. I knew that intermittent fasting was a big thing with a, a pretty... Um, pretty enthusiastic following. I didn't know fasted training was the same way until we made a recent Instagram post and uh, got some 
got some pushback from fasted training nation. So, um, I, I very cautiously limp into the fray with my answer to this question, hoping that no one will be very upset. Now, I should at least acknowledge the fact, you know, there's no conclusive evidence for a fat loss benefit of fasted training. I understand that wasn't the question, but it is one of those things that comes up all the time with fasted training. Um, There are several studies looking at it. It just doesn't seem to be particularly special when it comes to losing weight or losing fat in the long term. Now, when it comes to performance, um, similarly, there is no conclusive benefit based on research to training in a fasted state, um, there is some evidence to suggest that it is deleterious or less beneficial to train in the fasted state. I'll get to that in a minute. Um, Now, there is some evidence, if we're trying to be like pretty fair and give a little bit of credit where credit's due, We've talked about this on the show before. I forget what episode, but there's some evidence that there could be benefits to training in a glycogen depleted state. However, um, this is only if you're doing pretty low intensity work. And typically speaking, it's going to be within a program that also includes some high intensity work that is done when glycogen stores are not compromised. The, the premise of the idea, they'll, they'll talk about like training low is sometimes the terminology they use in the research. But the idea is that if you're doing low intensity work that almost exclusively is challenging aerobic metabolic systems, uh, there is some evidence to suggest that doing some of this low glycogen training with low intensities can help, uh, help promote increased adaptations of those aerobic, low-intensity energy systems. Um, So looking at different mitochondrial adaptations, there are some benefits there with low glycogen training. That's not necessarily fasted training. It's just purely based on, you know, the the current carbohydrate availability at the time of the bout. Um, And you could induce low glycogen by fasting. You could induce it by, you know, doing a prior training bout with some degree of carbohydrate restriction that fails to restore the glycogen storage. So it's not exactly the same thing as, as fasted training. Um, now, there was a study that came out by Bin Naharudin, which I absolutely mispronounced, almost certainly. Um, but that came out in 2019. And what they were looking at uh, was the, the effects of breakfast skipping on uh, resistance training performance over a series of repeated sets to failure. I think they were looking at the squat and squat and bench press. Is that right, Greg? That seems completely plausible. It, it was some kind of upper body and lower body compound lift. So, you know, it could have been like a chest press and a leg press or something like that. But you get the drift. I, I believe it was four sets to failure for each, if memory serves. But basically what they found was that Compared to having a carbohydrate-rich breakfast, uh, the people who skip breakfast, um, and again, it was kind of an experimental thing where they did both, they did both treatments, uh, but breakfast skipping was associated with uh, unfavorable outcomes. They completed less repetitions during the exercise testing. Now, we posted about that and people got very upset and basically said, no, these are you know, the the paper did say that this was in people who are habitual breakfast eaters. And so a lot of people said, well, you can adapt to this over time. Now, one point of contention I have with that is 
I don't believe that there's such thing as a breakfast skipper. And I'm being a, getting a little bit into semantics, but there are no breakfast skippers. There are late breakfast eaters. And so if, if you do a study, like I, I think it would have made a lot more sense if they specifically asked people, do you train before your first calorie consumption? Not do you skip breakfast? Because if you're a breakfast skipper, but you train after lunch, you're not adapted to fasted training. So like, it's a little bit semantic, but it is an important distinction that there's really no such thing as a breakfast skipper. Um, there's just late breakfast eaters. So what what they really, in my opinion, should have been looking at is when your first calories are consumed in relation to your typical training habits. But anyway. and 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 to be clear, what Eric is getting at here is that the word breakfast, like it's a two-part word, break fast. Uh, you are in a fasted state after a night of sleep. Whatever the first thing you eat after that that fasted state is, you are breaking your fast. And so like we are like cultural terminology, like we we call generally a morning meal breakfast. But if the first thing you eat is like at a time that would generally be associated with lunch and you're breaking your fast, then that it is still a breakfast. You're still breaking your fast. So it would be like both breakfast and lunch because um, lunch doesn't have, as far as I'm aware, like a, a semantic connotation of second meal of the day. Um, so yeah, you're assuming you aren't a breatharian you break your fast every day. You do eat breakfast every day. It may just not be at standard breakfast times. That does bring up a good point. There's an extreme lack of research on breatharians and and their kind of optimal training strategies. But if you're not a breatharian and you don't know what it is, it's probably not worth your time to look it up. It's uh, I guess it's people who say that they just don't eat ever, right? Yeah, they they claim to get the nourishment they need from the air that they breathe. Some people say they've been doing it for like, what, seven, eight years? Yeah, it sure would be cool to see that rigorously studied. <laughs> I A metabolic ward? <laughs> yeah, I, I have to assume they occasionally cheat on their diet. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd love to put that IRB through uh, for a metabolic ward study on breatharians. Be like, well, we're just going to hold them in here for six or seven years. They will not have access to food. Um, I don't think that'll go very well. Well, I, I think a lot of breatharians are also kind of like hippie types. Um, and it, it's not just like there's nourishment in the air, but it's more like uh, when you go out in nature and there's like fresh sunlight and like vegetation around the air in those circumstances is like particularly nourishing and you can live off of it. So I... I don't think you'd be able to do a metabolic ward study, but you mm. could you could just get like a master's student and tell them like, F follow this motherfucker around for like six months and see if they eat anything. <laughs> Tail them. Like, we, we got to get to the bottom of this. I, I think I think that's the best you could do. Hospital air wouldn't do it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's the best you could do without the breatharian community saying like, mm, big old loophole, not enough sunlight. We, we need we need more nourishing sunlight up here in the mix. Yeah. So in any case, what I'm getting at is, you know, this study came out and people said, well, hey, that was in breakfast skippers, but or, or, or it, it was uh, in breakfast eaters, not in people who normally skip breakfast. But 
that doesn't necessarily mean they were all adapted to training in the fasted state. It just means they didn't like eating right out of bed. Okay, so that's an important distinction. But in any case, um, you know, people kept kind of were arguing that you could adapt to this. And I think it's one of the things you should always ask yourself about the ability to adapt to something is just but just because you can does it mean you should um and i want to be really clear if you train fasted because it's convenient and you like it i am completely fine with that it it causes me no stress whatsoever and you're gonna be fine but um when i look at uh any number of any person who is supposed to perform well for a living in basically any pursuit, go to any strength room for any sport at any college or pro team. You're not going to find coaches saying, all right, be honest. Who slipped up and had breakfast before they came in? <laughs> don't don't lie to me. I, I know that you had breakfast. And if you're going to bring that shit into my weight room, just turn around and walk out. So m- could you potentially adapt to training fasted? Almost certainly there's some degree of partial adaptation. Maybe it's full adaptation and your your performance goes from being acutely below normal to pretty much normal. But what's the plus of that that adaptation? I mean, the, the only plus would be, you know, you eating breakfast before training doesn't fit your schedule. Maybe if you eat before training, it upsets your stomach. These are all totally fine, and I get it. And, and you probably will adapt at least to some some degree to fasted training. But I don't think that adapting to being able to train fasted is a goal that makes sense for many people. Does that make sense, Greg? Yeah, I agree. One thing, one thing I would add, and Eric kind of touched on this, but I don't think made it explicit, is like, this question was specifically asking about fasted cardio um, and not fasted weight training. And I, I think the key distinction is just kind of what the what the intensity of that session is going to be. So if it is a low intensity cardio session, so, you know, like like below lactate threshold, probably fairly long duration, but you're not, you know, you're not really pushing the intensity of that session doing it fasted is probably fine. Um, it will probably, especially if it's longer duration, it will probably compromise performance to some degree. But again, looking at the the low glycogen availability literature, like it, it may slightly compromise performance, but possibly improve adaptations and you come out ahead. Um, or at least you're not losing anything, like you're not giving up adaptations. Um, but if it's if it's higher intensity stuff, it's probably not a good idea to to do that in an in a fasted state. So, you know, if it's above threshold, like you're doing tempo runs, or especially if you're doing uh, hit, if you're like considering that fasted cardio, that's not stuff you would want to do in a fasted state. Um, the the research on improved adaptations with low glycogen availability that that has mostly been done looking at at lower intensity cardio and with higher intensity stuff being in a fasted state and specifically a, a lower glycogen state um is is likely to compromise performance to a great enough degree that it it will probably compromise adaptations as well so yeah, like low intensity stuff, fasted is fine. Low glycogen is fine. 
uh, higher intensity stuff, probably not a bad idea to have some food in your system. Or if you are going to do it fasted, like first thing in the morning, make sure you eat a bunch of carbs the night before so you have enough glycogen for that higher intensity stuff. That's a good point. Very clearly, I used this question as a jumping off point to continue an argument. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm probably in the top 3% most petty people in the universe. So um, in the interest of being useful, that's an excellent point. There, There are distinctions between fasted and low glycogen training. There are distinctions between applications for high and low intensity. And everything Greg just said is completely on point. And here's a kind of a practical way to do it. If you're doing low intensity cardio and there is zero question about the amount of work that will be performed. So like, let's say you're going to go on a treadmill on a set speed for a set time and cover a set distance. You're, you're going to be fine in a fasted state. You're going to do just as much. It's, it's not the, the issue is when you try to go in fasted to high intensity work or work or some kind of bout where the amount of work is in question. And there's potential that because you're in a fasted state and not performing optimally, you might shortchange the amount of work done and therefore eventually impair long-term adaptation from that. But if it's low intensity stuff, um, and, and you know this, you know, specific amount of work is going to get done for a particular purpose. Yeah, you're, you're, you're just fine doing fasted cardio. All right, moving on. Oh, one other thing I want to mention before we move on. I totally don't care if you train fasted. It's convenient for some people. Um, you'll probably adapt to it, at least partially. Uh, you'll be fine if you train fasted. But most importantly, I will be fine if you train fasted. So no need to get angry at me or send mean messages. Do still message him about me being a permanent co-host though. Not, it doesn't help whatsoever. Okay. (laughs) We've got another question by coin seven, seven, seven. The question is I have two powerlifting meets separated four weeks apart. How do I train to be peaked for both of them? Okay. So, so this is a, Good question. Um, and it so to answer it first off, I think it's um, it's important to to talk about what exactly you should expect out of a peak. So one of the things I see a, a mistake I see a lot of people make is they assume they're going to get way more out of a peak than is actually reasonable, um, and they're thinking like, oh man, yeah, if if I can. If I can grind out a 500 a 500 pound squat in training, then man, when I peak and I get those like meat day nerves going and whatnot, uh, get that adrenaline rush, I'm gonna be good for 550. Like I see that from a, a reasonable amount of people, uh, and the fact is, like you just shouldn't expect that much out of a peak. If you look at the research on it, and also if you talk to most lifters, um, it seems like the most you should, it it seems like a reasonable amount to expect out of a properly executed peak is a roughly two to 4% improvement in performance. Um, that, That is typical. There are absolutely people who get more out of a peak than that. Um, talking to Chad Wesley Smith about it, and and I think he's written about this for Juggernaut as well in in some of the older articles on the site. It seems like, especially for his squat, 
he gets like 10% out of a good peak. And so like that is possible. Um, but I think it's less like whether or not, I think it's less that if you execute a properly, or like if you execute a perfect peak, you'll get 10% out of it. And more that there are some people who can get 10% out of a peak. But if that hasn't happened to you before, probably you're in the two to 4% range. Like that's, that's standard. Now, a quick question. When you talk about a two to 4% increase from a peak, is that basically saying if you were to test when you're in your like really beat up end of training phase status, and then you kind of implement this peak of tapering, and then you retest, the difference between those is like two to 4%. Is that what, how we're operationalizing that? I think the best way to operationally think about it is like two to 4% over like a quote unquote normal state, like a normal training state. So, I mean, maybe it's like 5% or a little more over like a super overreached, possibly tipping towards overtrained state. Okay. Um, like if you're just really, really worn down and crushed with like really high volume training, I would I would kind of argue that if if you're seeing that if you're doing enough volume that you're getting that large of a decrement in performance that you can get that big of a super compensation from a peak you're you might be overdoing your training in the first place um but no the the 2 to 4% is over like a a normal non hyper fatigued and overreached state um yeah when I when I did my meet in 2012, I did uh, the base mesocycle of Smolov, <laughs> but then I took one week uh, of just normal training, and then I did the base mesocycle again. Oh no! So nine or eight out of nine weeks was doing base Smolov with a retested max in between. And uh, yeah, so so you probably you probably did get a pretty big boost. I got like a 35 percent, uh, not literally, but it was big. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, like if, if you're someone who like you plan your training into the meet to be significantly overreached prior to the taper and peak, you may get two to 4% or more than two to 4% out of it. I would question whether that's smart in the first place, but anyway, two to 4%. It's not. Yeah. I'm being an idiot. Yeah. Two to 4%. That's. That is uh, a standard amount to get out of a peak. So um, I, I just wanted to make that clear on the front end because I think a lot of people um, roll into a meet and they're like, oh man, I thought I was going to hit uh, a 10 pound PR on the platform. I went for that. I missed it. I think I probably could have hit a five pound PR. And the thing is like a good peak is probably like a five pound PR for, for a lot of people. So uh, j just in terms of evaluating whether your peaks were good or not, I think a lot of people expect way too much from a good peak. Anyway, so um, the actual question itself, you have two meets four weeks apart. How do you train to be peaked for both of them? I would say it's probably not possible to be perfectly peaked for both meets. Um, so I think your your best bet is to try to have one meet where you do peak properly and one meet where you're still somewhat peaked or at least rolling into it in a non-fatigued state. 
Um, but, but maybe you can't dial in every little piece of your peak perfectly. Um, so another just general statement is I, I'm going to tell you how I would probably recommend a nondescript person peak knowing absolutely nothing about them and having no context. Uh, one thing that I highly, highly recommend people do is if you're planning to roll into a meet and you're planning on peaking for it, practice peaking in training. Um, I think there's so like there's some research on what tends to work well for peaking, but if you talk to good lifters who have experimented with different approaches to to peaking for meets, you're going to hear a fair amount of different opinions about what has worked well for them or not. I think that. Um, certain approaches to peaking just don't work that well for some people and um, completely different approaches work well for different folks. So sometimes it's just a detail, like how far out do you do your last heavy training? Like for someone like hitting your last heavy squat five days out uh, in a fairly low volume session, but still like loading pretty heavy five days out, that, that may be what they find works best for them. For someone else, you know, you may want to hit your heaviest squat your or your last heavy squat in training 10, 14 days out. So sometimes it's just a detail like that. Like when do you actually start pulling the plug and, and lowering training stress? Sometimes it's just the way you approach the, the deload um, at the end of the peak. So uh, what you will often see recommended in the research is to cut volume, but not necessarily drop intensity too much. Um, so, you know, you, you probably don't want to be doing singles at 95% of your max three days before the meet, but still, you know, putting 80, 85% on the bar, um, but just, you know, keeping volume fairly low, cutting some sets, staying at uh, eight RPE or below. That's what you tend to see recommended in the literature. Um, what works well for a lot of people, though, is to drop uh, intensity and volume and say, you know, you're going to do your last heavy singles. Like you're going to hit your openers maybe a week out or so. And then for the week of the meet, you're going to keep lifting, but you're probably not going to go over 65, 70% of your max. And you're just going to hit doubles and triples. Um, so for some people, it works to leave the intensity higher. For some people, you drop both volume and intensity. Um, so yeah, there's there's different approaches to peaking that work well for different people. For you as an individual, you may find different approaches work for different lifts. Uh, a lot of people find that they can keep training bench a little bit harder and loading it a little bit heavier to closer to the meet, whereas you know two weeks out is the last time they even think about a heavy deadlift. So yeah, just as a general rule, play around with your peaking. Um, if, if that's what is going to make, if that's something that you're planning to make some sort of substantial impact about your performance on the platform, which is ultimately what you're training for, if you're planning on competing, uh, it doesn't make much sense to me that that's something that you would leave as a complete unknown and just, you know, do it and hope it works and never have practiced it before. So yeah, try different approaches to peaking in your training and get an idea of what works for you before, you know, you're two weeks out from a meet and it's like, well, drew up this peaking cycle. Let's just roll the dice and hope it works. Um, so anyway, I, I'm going to give advice with the assumption that you peak 
kind of normally. Um, but if you know how peaking works well for you, you can just kind of like sub that approach in to the advice I'm about to give. Okay, so with, with that massive preamble out of the way, um, you have these two meets. If the first meet is the more important one, then what I would recommend is for the first meet, peak normally and commit to it. Um, so, you know, if that means, for example, you're you're done with heavy training 10 days out and then you're just doing light stuff, rolling like rolling up to the meet for the last 10 days prior to the meet, and then, you know, you're you're going to go really, really hard at that meet. You're probably going to be fairly fatigued and worn down afterwards. It might take you, you know, four or five days, maybe up to a week to feel normal and get back into hard training again. And then, you know, lo and behold, you only have two weeks of actual training time before your next meet. You know, you're probably not going to be at optimal performance for the second meet. But if the first meet is the one that really matters to you, that's fine. Um, so if the first meet is the important one, commit to it, uh, peak how you normally would, um, take the time off after the meet, like about four or five days or up to a week, because the assumption is if that's the important meet, you're really, really, really going hard at that. You're trying to, you know, hit the heaviest third attempts you possibly can. You're going to be a little fatigued. And then for the second meet, um, after the first meet, you have a week either off or doing really easy training to recover. Then uh, the second week, so three weeks out, you're going to have one week of normal heavy training, um, but at low-ish RPEs. So in that week, you'd probably want to go up to about 80-85% of your max, but for all of your stuff, you probably want to leave at least two or three reps in the tank. If you're the type of person who likes to overreach before a meet and then uh, try to deload and super compensate to pull back, don't fucking try to overreach in realistically two weeks of training when you're just coming off a meet. Would not recommend that. So you're, you're going to get realistically one week of normal training uh, a week after your, your first meet. And like I said, go fairly heavy, 80, 85%, but keep RPEs relatively low. Try to try to leave at least two or three reps left in the tank um, and keep volume pretty manageable as well. You don't want to try to overreach in one week. That's a bad idea. Then the next week, you're probably going to be hitting openers. The order I would generally recommend to hit those openers in is probably deadlift early in the week, somewhere close to 14 days out from the meet squat when you're recovered from hitting the deadlift opener. Um, so probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 days out from the meet and then bench last, probably seven to eight days out from the meet. And then for meet week, what I would generally recommend for the actual deload portion, um, is continuing to train, get in the gym four or five days and just stick with like 55 to 70 percent of your max and just do sets of like two or three do five or six sets really easy stuff you're mainly just trying to keep your joints feeling good keep the movement patterns fresh and snappy um but but i'm of the opinion that it's generally a pretty good idea to lower both volume and intensity but still get in the gym and get some work done um, so anyway, you would do that as your deload and then you compete at the end of that week. So you have one week all for really easy after the first meet. Second week, fairly heavy, but not super hard. 
Um, you're not going to have time to elicit a major training effect. So really, it's just a week to to reintroduce yourself to heavy training after that easy week off after the meet. Third week, openers. Fourth week, deload and compete at the end of the week. You're probably not going to do quite as well in the second meet as the first meet. But again, here I'm assuming the first one's the important one. Second meet should still go pretty okay with that approach. Uh, then if the second meet is the one that's more important to you, um, what I would recommend you do is just implement it into your training almost. So for example, I, I would probably set up um, like wave type training. And so, you know, you have a week that's like if you're doing a three week wave, you have a, a lighter week then a moderately heavy week, then a heavy week, and then you go back to a lighter week, then a moderately heavy week, and then a heavy week. And so if you have one meet that's four weeks out, what I would probably do is two weeks out from that meet, um, probably train at around 80%. One week out from that meet, I would probably hit soft openers early in the week. Um, so, you know, maybe a little below what you're actually going to open, but uh, at least hit like a kind of heavy single early in the week in all three of your lifts. And otherwise, train at around 85% um, and keep RPEs low-ish so the meat's not going to go bad, like you'll still be relatively fresh. Then uh, you hit the, the meat the next week, um, and that is the heavy week of this block. So, you know, if, if it would be like 80% one week, 85% the next week, and then in normal circumstances, 90% the third week. Realistically, you're rolling up to the meet and you're probably not going to miss any lifts. You're not going to push it as hard as you possibly can. You're probably going to hit something that is like, you know, 95, 96%. So you can just kind of slot that in as the third week of your wave. And then after the meet, since you shouldn't be super, super worn down from that because you're not actually hitting true maxes, uh, the week after, about 80%. Week after that, about 85%. Week after that, third week of the wave, pretty heavy again. Use that for your openers. And then you deload and compete the following week. Um, for the week of that first meet, um, since all of the heavy work that week is backloaded, uh, you're, you're going to hit everything on Saturday at the meet, I would recommend just redistributing the lifts that you typically do uh, in in your week. So, you know, you're probably doing stuff other than just one heavy squat day, one heavy bench day, one heavy deadlift day. So I'd, what I'd recommend is still doing that other training throughout the week, uh, but keeping RPEs fairly low. So, you know, generally leaving about three reps in reserve and probably lowering volume a bit as well. Um, so dropping probably one to two sets per exercise, uh, below what you would typically do. Um, and I'd probably recommend trying to do a fair amount of that training early in the week. So for meet week on the first week, um, if you generally disperse your training throughout the week, I, I, tr I'd recommend trying to do kind of like your, your lighter work for squat bench deadlift or like your accessories, like your front squats or like close grip bench or whatever, trying to do most of that stuff on like Sunday through Wednesday. So you can take Thursday and Friday kind of easy and then be fairly fresh for, for a meet on Saturday. Um, and again, just using that as like your heavy training for that third week of the wave. Um, 
And then it, as long as in that first meet, you are taking it kind of easy. You're not hitting thirds that you might miss. You're not grinding too much. You're just generally trying to put a solid total on the platform, but not the absolute best you're capable of. You should probably be fine to go ahead and pick back up where you left off the next week with with a normal week of training uh, to start the next wave at, uh, again, around 80% of your max, give or take. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's what I would recommend. Um, I feel like that was a pretty long answer to that question, but I, I think there was a fair amount to unpack there. I mean, I, I think that's one of those things people can refer back to uh, now that we have pressed it to vinyl. I think it made sense to give a nice detailed answer. Um, I just want to reiterate what you said for it. You said it for powerlifting, but it works for bodybuilding too. If you're going into any kind of peaking strategy for any kind of athletic event and you're really, really pulling for some kind of miraculous, uh, some kind of miraculous peaking strategy that your performance is totally going to be predicated on, it's probably a bad strategy, you know? So like, a lot of bodybuilders are like, so if I look horrible seven days out, what can I do? And it's like, well, the best strategy for a bodybuilder is like when you're 13 days out or 11 days out, you're like, oh, I can get on stage tomorrow. I feel all right. I, I feel like powerlifting is different, but it's the same thing. You're, you're, you shouldn't put all of your eggs in the basket of hoping for a last minute kind of miracle. Unless you do have a history of that. So, I mean, like, someone like Chad Wesley Smith, if he has a history of, you know, maybe you do your first meet and you think you're going to get 4% out of a peak and then your third attempt squat's just an absolute joke, it's like, oh, maybe I get more out of a peak. You do a second meet, you maybe go, you maybe assume you're going to get 6% out of your peak, your third attempt squat is still a joke, then it's like, okay, like, maybe I do get a lot out of a peak, but that's that's kind of what I was getting at where you should practice this shit beforehand so you, so you know realistically what to expect and you're not just trying stuff on meat day because it, it does sometimes work in reverse. Like if you're someone who does let yourself get pretty overreach near the end of a cycle, you may get more than 2 per, two to 4% out of a peak and you don't want to assume that you are only going to get a little bit and then lowball all of your attempts. So... Yeah, just, that's the just practice this and and base it on base it on prior experience. And if if you're rolling into a meet and you don't have any prior experience of peaking to base your expectations on, like that's that's your problem. Uh, but but if you've historically not gotten ten percent out of a peak, like Trex was saying, um, and you're thinking, well, maybe this is the time. It's not going to be the time. Your your past peaking experience is probably going to be fairly indicative of what you're going to get out of it in the future. And that that's a key distinction as well between the the two different, uh, you know, bodybuilding and powerlifting. With bodybuilding, you're going to show up, you're going to try to look your best, period. With powerlifting, you, ha- you have to actually select your attempts. So, so you, as you were saying, like, you have to have some idea to make sure not just that you're overshooting your attempts, but also that you're not undershooting them because they're equally not great. Absolutely. All right. Next question for Eric from Gans and Oak. How long uh, how long does it take metabolically to recover from long duration diets? So for example, a show prep that you have to push for 
a, a great number of months. So I feel like every question we get, we start with like a list of caveats, but this isn't just for um, bodybuilding competitors. You know, people go on diets for a variety of reasons and the, the goals of those diets are certainly quite different, but um, I, I think because there's a lot of content out there about recovering from really intense prep diets that people have, I'm not saying that the person asking this question is, but I see a lot of people who are like, okay, so I dieted for six months. How do I recover from this? But what you find is it was six months of a very, very chill diet, wasn't a super fast rate of weight loss. They didn't get super lean and they did not lose that much weight doesn't mean their diet didn't work. It means they took a very conservative approach and they got to a healthy body weight. That is good. <laughs> so, but, but what I'm getting at is recovery from a diet depends on how long was it, how, how extreme was the rate of weight loss, and it, essentially how lean did you get at the end? And also what was the, the total magnitude of weight loss? So even if you didn't get exceptionally lean, you might be in an interesting physiological state if you just lost a hundred pounds. Um, at the same time, you know, you might be in a super interesting state if you didn't necessarily lose that much weight, but you went from sustainably lean to unsustainably lean for a photo shoot or a competition or whatever for your wedding. Who, you know, people diet for all sorts of reasons. Um, so the the general premise there is that it, the recovery duration. Because uh, the question is, how long does it take? The recovery duration depends on how extreme the diet was. And we also have to consider what the word recovery entails. So a lot of people wonder, if my metabolic rate or my energy, expendi- energy expenditure seems low, um, if my energy expenditure seems low, how long will it take for that to go back to normal? Sometimes people say, hey, my testosterone is low. When is that going to recover? I'm not performing well in the gym. When is that going to recover? I have no libido or I've been missing my periods or I can't sleep at night or I'm extremely hungry. There are many different facets of recovery uh, that all seem to recover on slightly different timescales. And one of the critical things determining that timescale is how much you actually commit to recovering. So I'm going to, for, for this question, I'm going to assume that you, you dieted to an extreme enough level that recovery is needed, which again is not everybody. If you're at a sustainable body weight and you took a conservative approach to dieting, you probably don't need to recover at all, really. But let's say you do need to recover. You know, you're, you're in this state where energy expenditure is low, your hormones are a mess, your performance sucks, you have no libido, all that stuff. The rate of your recovery is going to be predicated largely on how much you overfeed and to some degree the re- the regain of weight is probably going to drive some of this recovery um, how much weight do you need to regain it really depends on what a good sustainable non-dieting body fat is for you you know not everyone has the same minimum body fat level they can that they can comfortably maintain but you, you got to kind of play with it and figure out what that is but I can tell you that if your body's typically nice and comfortable and things are great at 13% body fat as a male and you're trying to hang around at 6% for a while, your recovery could essentially just not happen. I mean, you you can basically just keep yourself in that state if you don't commit to actually increasing your energy intake, putting a little bit of weight back on and, and really prioritizing that recovery. So 
What we can do is we can look at studies that have looked at this recovery in people that have done bodybuilding or physique-related preps. And there, there's a few case studies. There is a really nice study by Juha Holmi and his colleagues uh, over in Finland where they actually had a decent-sized sample of females that, uh, that did a prep and a recovery. When we look at the at this data or, or this body of research as a whole, um, the hormones that are associated with short-term energy availability, so looking at things like ghrelin and thyroid hormone, insulin, cortisol, those seem to recover pretty substantially within the first three to four months. Some hormones take a little bit longer. Um, testosterone levels in males don't get, they, they start certainly start recovering within that three to four month time range, but they might not be back to near totally normal baseline levels until like five or six months for a lot of people. Um, same thing with leptin. Obviously, leptin is closely tied to how full your fat cells are. So certainly, if you try to stay super lean, the leptin's just not coming back um, for most people. If if you diet and then recover, but you're... This is something I've always wondered about leptin. So it, it does seem to kind of maybe govern set points to some degree. And it's based partially on what you're eating, partially on energy availability, and partially on the fullness of, of said fat cells. So I was wondering, like, if let's say someone starts at 25% body fat, they cut to 5% um, because, you know, they very aggressively wanted to do a bodybuilding show and started from a, a very, very deep off season, and then they want to like settle at 15% after the recovery. Do those leptin levels get back to normal? Because those fat cells, so like 15% is generally a pretty normal, healthy body comp, but those fat cells are going to be a lot less full at 15% than 25%. So like, d does leptin, like, does recovery of leptin happen if people don't get all the way back up to the body comp or I guess down, uh, back down to the body comp they started with? Without having data in front of me, I, I certainly wouldn't expect it to, to get all the way straight back to baseline. I would expect it to be at a new baseline because again, those, those fat cells are in a very different state. But I would think that it should at least be within a, what we would consider like a normal reference range. Gotcha. Whereas when they're, when they're down in prep level, it, it will probably be comfortably below the normal reference range. So I don't think the goal should be to get leptin necessarily back to its baseline value because as you get very obese, you can drive those leptin levels through the roof. Mm -hmm. And if, I mean, if you want to get those levels when you're down at like 13% body fat, good luck. But I, I would say that it's probably an advisable goal to try to get back within the reference range. And what you might find is that even though even though the leptin level doesn't quite settle back at its highest number, especially if you start with a decent amount of body fat, you might find that, you know, leptin's a little bit lower, but the things we associate with leptin are still re regulated very normally. Just because um, leptin sensitivity improves? Exactly. Yeah, I, gotcha. I, I would expect that if you started with super inflated leptin levels, you probably had some degree of leptin resistance uh, in many cases. That makes sense. So yeah, I, that that's a, a really good point of something to keep in mind is that the goal doesn't necessarily need to be to get every aspect of your 
to re- re- retain every aspect of what you did when you were at a substantially higher body fat, but now at a lower one. So like, for instance, let's say you started out 25% body fat, like your example, but strong as hell, right? And you, you died it down to 5% or whatever, and you settle back at 13 in the off season. You at 13% is still going to be a much smaller person than you used to be at 25. You're not going to re- recover all your strength. You know, so in in most cases, um, and so that that's something to keep in mind is that if you're not interested in getting all the way back to your starting weight, you're going to have to make some concessions in terms of how you view recovery. But generally speaking, I would say as long as you're allowing a somewhat generous rate of weight regain to put you back at a still decently lean but at least sustainable body fat. Usually within six months, you should, for most outcomes, be about where you're going to be. You know, it should be. You shouldn't be thinking like, "Well, over the next 18 months, I'm going to start feeling normal." If that's the case, you need to make some more concessions and start eating more. Um, you you should really try. You should aim to be feeling yourself again within a few months, and then essentially fully recovered within six. I think. Um, one thing that is extremely unpredictable, though, I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but I've said it before, the recovery of a normal menstrual cycle is so difficult. Uh, when you look at the research, the amount of variability is really wild. So there was a case study, the first author's last name was Holiday. Um, and in that case study, the participant, it took a full 71 weeks um, to, to get back to, uh, I don't know if it was the first menstrual cycle or when it was a fully normal menstrual cycle. Um, but I remembered like it it took a full 71 weeks to get the menstrual cycle, at least operating again. Um, and that was with uh, a competitor that did regain, um, close to, if not all of their body weight. I actually think they regained a little bit more than they lost during the prep. Um, there, there are also some some uh, larger studies in non-physique athletes looking at like dancers and uh, various endurance athletes with like menstrual disorders. And even when they do like nine, 12 months, 12 month interventions, it, it's really hit or miss about who's going to recover and who isn't. Um, and there's even a study by uh, Chu at all, C-H-O-U in 2011, they kind of took a really extreme approach with exogenous leptin injections and uh, menstruation. Uh, it was restored in only seven of the 10 subjects undergoing the injections. And it was restored in a span of three to, or I'm sorry, four to 32 weeks in those seven that did have restoration. So was that just leptin injections or leptin injections along with overfeeding and some other sort of intervention? I would imagine... I'm not certain, but I'd be shocked if they didn't have at least some other kind of intervention to make sure that their diet and exercise habits were conducive to, you know, like getting them at least back to a somewhat appropriate energy availability level. I'd be stunned if that wasn't part of the intervention. Um, I'd have to go back and check, but that would be a pretty nonsensical intervention if they <laughs> if they gave them leptin injections and then just said, yeah, but you can still have totally disordered eating and, and run eight hours a day. So I would imagine that there was at least some degree of, uh, of restriction over those aspects. But um, in any case, to put it in a nutshell, um, I was having a discussion with uh, Brandon Roberts, Peter Fitchin, and Eric Helms. And all you know, we were going back and forth about like, how long does it take to recover? And we're like, I don't know, man. 
where did you start? How lean did you get? How much are you overfeeding? Um, are you willing to regain your weight? How much of it should you regain? Um, we're trying to put together like a decent estimate on the time. And I think essentially we reached the conclusion that it's like time is not a good way to to approximate that. It, it, it really comes down to a multifactorial approach. After the competition or after this dieting phase, you need to manage your training volume, you need to manage your energy availability, and you need to get back to a sustainable body fat. If all of those are met, all of those conditions are met in a timely manner within the first, you know, three, four, five weeks after competition, you're at least moving in those directions. I would expect that, you know, with a with a steady rate of weight regain and immediately getting to a a decent training volume and a decent energy availability status, I would say somewhere within three to six months, you should be feeling pretty all right. Okay, question for Greg about training here. So looking for strength adaptations, and the question is, uh, is daily undulating periodization within blocks the best approach or high-frequency Norwegian-style training? Yeah, so th- this is a, a somewhat tough question to answer because the two approaches aren't aren't mutually beneficial so you know it's kind of like uh what's best like apples or bananas it's like they're they're two different things um so you can have a a high frequency approach to training that also utilizes daily undulating periodization so it's hard to say one or the other is better because they're they're two separate things that uh that can can be integrated um so i'm just going to talk about dup itself uh and then training frequency in general so um in terms of how how good and how useful dup is in uh in opposition to like a non-dup approach i think a fair amount of of that depends on like how long do you have between right now and when you're retesting your strength. So what I mean by that is that um, if you are, if you're coming off, say like an off season block of training and you haven't been training that heavy for a while and you want to hit the heaviest one rep max possible in six weeks, then I think that daily undulating training is Uh, a pretty smart thing that one can do if you're comparing that to say a more linear approach where you're not also going to to include high intensity training every week and it's maybe like you know two weeks at 70 percent two weeks at 80 percent and two weeks at 90 percent so i i did a review of the research on um, different periodization approaches um, for Stronger by Science maybe two years ago at this point. And in that review, there was a trend for... I can't remember if it was statistically significant or not. I, th- I think it was, but if it was, it was still not like a super low p-value. But th- there was like a, there was a tendency for daily undulating approaches to do better than linear approaches without like undulating programming within the week um, for for strength for most circumstances. But the the interesting thing to note is like most of the linear versus DUP studies that have been done 
are fairly short term so like 12 weeks or fewer and a lot in like the eight ish week range there were only a handful of studies that ran longer than that so like i think a couple used 16 weeks and maybe like one was like 20 weeks long and in the longer duration studies um the dup approach didn't outperform the linear approach and the the outperformance of dup over a linear approach was the largest in the shortest term studies overall. So I, I think what's going on there is that with DUP, you're generally having a heavy day, a medium day, and a light day. Um, you can call them strength, power, hypertrophy, but I, I don't know. I don't particularly like that terminology because that's often not exactly what those three days correspond with like what you'd be training on those days. But so anyway, you have a heavy a heavy day, a medium day, and a light day. And generally on that heavy day, you're going to be going at least 80-85% of your max. So you're doing something pretty heavy every week, or at least fairly heavy every week. Um, compared to a purely linear approach without any within-week undulating elements, if it's a six-week study, you may only be going over 80-85% for two weeks before testing. There's like two light weeks, two medium weeks, two heavy weeks. So you're in a situation where you're comparing one group that has done at least some heavy training every week for six weeks versus another group that has only gotten in practice with heavy weights for two weeks prior to testing. So under those circumstances, I don't think it's all that surprising that DUP does better. For the longer duration studies where, you know, it's running 16 weeks or longer, generally the way those studies are set up is the linear group is training fairly heavy for at least four or five weeks prior to testing. And so they have plenty of time to develop comfort with heavy weights, to build the skills that they need to lift heavy and hit a good max. And so, you know, you have one group that's been touching heavy weight every week for 16 weeks. You have another group that has at least been touching heavy weight every week for four or five weeks. Doesn't really seem like the DUP approach leads to bigger strength gains in that circumstance. So I, I kind of think, to circle back to, to how I started answering this question, I, I think it depends when when you're testing. Um, so basically, I think it's it's probably a pretty good idea to get in at minimum four to six weeks of training where, you know, you're going at least over 80, 85% of your max, you'll be ready to hit a good one rep max on, on meet day or on test day. Um, and if you have six months between now and your next competition, you don't necessarily need to implement DUP and go heavy every single week for the next six months to be ready to go heavy at the competition. Um, you just have more time to work with and you don't, I don't necessarily know that you get anything out or you get any more out of already going super heavy when you're like four weeks or four months, I should say out from a meet. Um, so anyway, I think, I think undulating approaches in general can be good for a lot of lifters just from, just from a perspective of like not burning them out. Uh, a lot of people don't necessarily like to train in the exact same intensity range, session after session, week after week. Uh, it leads to staleness. It 
just isn't fun for a lot of people. And so I, I think I think a big practical benefit of DUP or just some undulating approach to your training is just that you're you're cycling through rep ranges and intensities and you're you're doing something at least kind of fresh session to session, week to week. And so I think that can be more engaging for a lot of lifters, but just in terms of pure physiology, um, I don't know that long term it offers you that much of an advantage unless it's just something that your lifters really, really like. And I, I think that lifter preference is often discounted, um, but I think that in terms of if, if you're going to use DUP with someone year round, the best rationale for it is that's just what this lifter really likes. Um Anyway, so that that answers, I hope, the DUP part of the question. Really, really good in the short term. Not worse in the long term, but probably doesn't actually add you that much extra if you have a long time between today and when you're going to test, as long as you can get in a, at least a good four to six weeks of, of heavy training prior to when you plan on maxing. Then in terms of frequency, um, I think that... I think that there's theoretical arguments to be made for higher training frequencies. Uh, I think when you look at the literature, so I, I did a review on this for Stronger by Science as well, it seems that higher frequency approaches in general tend to lead to like not night and day faster strength gains, but slightly faster strength gains than lower intensity approaches. Um, my general assumption is that there's probably some degree of diminishing returns and that having a training frequency of twice a week for each main lift is probably a pretty decent amount better than once per week. Not for everyone, but for most people. Three times per week may be slightly better than twice per week, but probably isn't a huge deal. And then I think you hit pretty big diminishing returns after that point. So like, I think two to three percent is the sweet spot for most people and most lifts on average. Um, but one thing that one thing that I've seen, not necessarily in the research, but just as someone who's talked about high frequency training and has also talked to a lot of people who have been, you know, training and competing since the 80s when like lower frequency approaches were a lot more common is I think that um, I think frequency is is maybe the most volatile training variable that there is in terms of like the major ones. So, you know, volume, intensity, frequency, I think of, of those three uh, frequency is the one that that is the most volatile. Like for most people, if you dial up intensity a little bit, eh, it's probably going to be a little better for strength gains for most people. Um, you know, as long as you're not just like, you know, hitting 90% plus every single week. Uh, but, you know, on average over time, training at like 80, 85%, probably going to be better for strength gains than training at 70% over time. That's fairly predictable. It's not how it works for all people, but that's how it works for the vast majority of people. Um, volume is kind of more of a like an inverted U approach. If you're just doing one set per week for a major movement, you're probably going to be a lot better off doing five sets per week for that major movement. 
And if it gets extreme and you're doing 30 sets per week, that's probably not great either. I think where exactly that inverted U is situated depends a lot on the individual. But that that overall relationship is, again, fairly predictable. Uh, Optimal volume for some person might be five sets a week. For someone else, it might be 15. But that overall inverted U shape, fairly predictable for most people. Uh, most people don't make their best strength gains on super, super low volume or ridiculously high volume. Frequency, on the other hand, is it's a fucking crapshoot. Um, <laughs> like, so some people really do do the best with a frequency of once per week. They do more than that. They start getting worn down. Shit starts breaking. Like, it's, it's just not good. Uh, that is, like, some people... They, they move from a frequency of once per week to twice per week and the wheels fall off. Uh, I don't think that's incredibly common, but I've seen it enough times that I don't think it's like, oh, these people, like the entire rest of their program was dog shit and that's what it was. Like some people just can't handle that much frequency, period. One challenging session per week, that's optimal for them. Uh, I think two to three works pretty well for a lot of people, but then on the higher frequency end of things, there's some people, and particularly like certain lifts for some people, where when they get up in like the four to five times per week frequency range or possibly even higher, then it's like takes off like a rocket ship. You know, you add 50% or not 50%, that's, that's insane. You add like 50 pounds to a lift in six weeks and it's like, why did I never try this before? This high frequency shit, it's the best thing ever. And then if they go back to lower frequency, nothing happens. And it's like, okay, I'm married to the higher frequency approach now. This is just what really, really works well for me. And then for other people, they dial up training frequency more than three times per week and the wheels just fall off. They just can't do it. Um, And I think sometimes that's down to programming because you know if you have a frequency of twice per week, you can go pretty hard in both of those sessions for a particular lift and still have plenty of time to recover. You can't necessarily go into high-frequency training with the same mindset. If you really, really get after it for a lift five times per week, that's probably not ideal. Like, You're going to need to lower volume per session. You're probably going to need to leave a few more reps in the tank. Um, So I think for some people, the higher-frequency stuff doesn't work, either because they don't know how to modify things rolling into it, or just psychologically, they don't want to do a training session where they don't feel like they really, really push themselves. And they they can't get in kind of like the sub-maximal mindset that's necessary to to make high, like really high frequency approaches work. But I think some people they do do everything right, but they they just they just can't handle it. Um but yeah, just, so just to simplify uh and and restate a lot of what I just said. I think that like if you know nothing about an individual and you're setting up a training program for them, frequency of once or twice per week for deadlift, two to three times per week for squat, two to three times per week for bench, I think that's a pretty decent starting point for most people. But I don't think you can assume that frequency is going people's response to frequency is going to be as predictable as their response to volume and intensity like some people they will thrive with high frequency some people are going to crash and burn some people are going to make their best progress with really low frequency so it's it's hard to give a one-size-fits-all recommendation like i said once or twice per week for deadlift 
two to three for squat and bench. That's kind of like normal-ish enough that it works fairly well for most people. But when you start experimenting with different frequencies, I would say probably throw expectations out the window. May do great, may do really poorly, probably not going to be incredibly predictable. I think that's important too, uh, that people at least uh, are encouraged to give it a shot and see what they think. Oh, yeah. Because with high-frequency training, especially on the bodybuilding side where there's a million ways to do it, I, I feel like bodybuilding training, it's like, God, there's just so many different approaches that have become popular over the years. Um, when people try it, aside from their response to it, I think one of the things that also varies a lot is how much people enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And so, like, uh, some people love the idea that if they're training legs, you know, lower body five days a week, they can go in and do an exercise or two of legs and move on, do some chest, do some back, whatever. Whereas uh, some people really can't stand the idea of not being on their sixth set of legs and, like, crawling out of the gym. And there's a lot of different ways to set up those training programs, but an important thing to consider is, which of those do you prefer? Like, do you need to feel like you really train the hell out of a muscle group before you leave the gym? Or are you comfortable with saying, cool, I did uh, six sets of, of back work and I'll be doing it again tomorrow or the day after, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that that is a big thing as well. And like I said, I think it, it kind of depends on whether someone can get into the submaximal mindset. Um, it, and I could see that being a bigger problem for bodybuilders on average than powerlifters. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, some people, some people like higher frequency stuff is the most psychologically liberating thing because they're used to say only having one big squat day a week and they need to get after it on that squat day. Like they have to hit the numbers they have written down. Uh, volume has to be pretty high. So they're, they're going to be pretty worn down by the end of that session. And you know, if, if that session goes poorly, you just have to like crawl back into your hole and hope it goes better next week. And then you have like a whole week to fret about it and stress about it. Whereas like if it, if it's if it's your only time squatting that week, like that session fucking matters and it better go really, really well. Um, yeah, it's or, like one fiftieth of your squatting for the year. Right, exactly. Uh, and if it goes poorly, then you have to wait an entire week to find out like, was that session just an aberration or is this program going poorly? Yeah. And then that's, you know, a, t- a 25th of your squatting for the year that you're just trying to figure <laughs> out, is this program going well or not? Whereas with a higher frequency approach, like you can have bad days, you can have good days. If shit really isn't going well and you're training to lift four times in a week, you get those three or four bad workouts back to back to back to back and you find out within a calendar week that like, oh, something I'm doing isn't isn't really agreeing with me right now. Um, and you don't have to you don't have to stress about squat day next week for an entire week um, and stress as much about every session. And then like on on the flip side, I do think it's high frequency stuff can be stressful for people who are um who are like the complete opposite of that, like like Eric mentioned. Um, if you're someone who does want to be peeling themselves up off the floor of the gym and on the verge of death after a squat session, 
and that's the only way you know how to to train squat and that's the only way you want to train squat like if you tried another approach to squatting you would just hate it because that's that's not a squat day to you god damn it don't do high frequency. You you can't do that five days a week. I, I was going to say, yeah, wh- whichever way you go, because I did that previously in my life. <laughs> I, 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 damn it. I hate to admit this, but I, I used to... I hate to admit the second part of this. The first part is I used to train each muscle group once per week. So I beat the hell out of it. I'm not embarrassed to admit that. I am embarrassed to admit that the first time I tried high frequency training, I still did it. And so it was like, I trained the hell out of every muscle group every day. And as you might suspect, it did not go particularly well. (laughs) Those were rough times. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think, I think that's how it was for a lot of people who tried higher frequency stuff back in the day. Cause like it, I mean, at, at this day, it's, I feel like there are different communities in the fitness industry built around different frequencies. Like there, there are definitely people who still advocate for body part splits and once per week frequencies. There's a large and I think growing movement of people who are big time advocates for higher frequency. And like, if you're interested in higher frequency stuff, you can seek out information and there's, there's folks who will guide you through it and say, you know, if you're coming to this off of a lower frequency approach, you know, probably shouldn't be going as close to failure every set. Definitely shouldn't be doing as many sets per workout for a particular muscle group as you're accustomed to. Like, there's there's pretty decent advice for easing into it. You go back like six or seven years, or or even longer, when uh, when like the hardcore orthodoxy was once per week and maybe twice if you're a crazy motherfucker. Uh, and if anything higher than that, you're gonna overtrain and die. Like. Back then, there wasn't that much information out there about higher frequency approaches. And I think one of the reasons there wasn't is like, you know, everyone just trained each muscle group once or twice a week. And so you're going to try four times a week. Well, you're going to train that muscle group the only way you know how, which is with a level of volume and effort that was appropriate for once per week. And then everyone just trained themselves into the ground. So, yeah, I, I think, I mean, I did that too. Like, I I think if you ask someone, if you ask people who experimented with higher frequency approaches more than about five years ago, how they tried it the first time, I I think a lot of us probably did something similar. Yeah. All right. Next question for Eric from Mr. Andre. What is your take on intuitive eating? Uh, Given the fact that macro and calorie counting is only possible since the advances of science, it seems like we should have a built-in mechanism which will increase hunger when our body registers the necessity for muscle growth. Yeah, so I'm going to keep my answer pretty brief because intuitive eating is not an area that I claim to have a great deal of expertise in. And I don't want to fall into that trap of like building a straw man, beating the hell out of it, and then having like the intuitive eating crowd be like, hey, I don't think you get it. But based on the premise of the question, it sounds like macro and calorie counting hasn't been a critical part of human history. Shouldn't we have mechanisms in place that will adjust our appetite to an appropriate degree based on what we need? Do you think that's a fair characterization, Greg? Yeah, I think that's pretty much what he's getting at. So um, in our current food environment, 
uh, wh- whether it's the way food's made or our societal and kind of cultural responses to food, it doesn't seem as though one can rely purely on hunger cues alone uh, to dictate their caloric intake. Or maybe theoretically you could, but because of different hedonic and, and cultural and societal aspects of how we approach food, we just override the hell out of them. Um, but in any case, uh, certainly you can tell when you're hungry, but I don't think people are good at telling exactly how hungry they are and tailoring their intake perfectly to that. Um, some people are quite good at it, but when you look at mathematically how easy it is to become overweight or obese based on BMI data uh, across a, a billion different cultures on the planet, it, it seems like those built-in mechanisms are not doing a great job of keeping us perfectly titrated to energy balance. Um, however, uh, tracking forever is not a sustainable approach. You know, you, you don't want to be like, oh, I, I used to only eat clean foods, but now I discovered macros, so I'm going to live my entire life with a digital food scale and a tracking app in my pocket. That's not a sustainable way to do things. Um, so I'm more for, this is a, a term I made up with virtually no effort or thought. So let's not, uh, let's not hashtag it, but viewing it more as like habitual eating rather than intuitive eating, which basically what I'm getting at is I think it does benefit people who have some interest in manipulating their diet to do some pretty, um, pretty detailed tracking for some stretch of time. So be like, you know what, for the next four, six, eight, 12 weeks, I am going to track my food pretty well. And I'm going to use a scale and I'm going to track my macros uh, pretty diligently and start to start to learn what portion sizes look like, what swapping certain foods in and substitutions, what those look like. I think you want to build up the skill of macro tracking so that you can transfer out into more habitual eating habits. Now, that doesn't mean you have to eat the same thing every day, but I think a decent goal for somebody who wants to keep an eye on their diet and manipulate it without really rigorous tracking, I think a goal would be to develop enough of a skill set with some amount of tracking that you can kind of mentally loosely track when you're not tracking. And the the goal would be that essentially you can become skilled enough to make some some broad estimations and substitutions within your normal base habitual diet, but also develop a comfort level with knowing that your estimations and substitutions don't have to be perfect. So part of that is a skill a skill set and part of that is more of a psychological uh, status of being comfortable with some degree of uncertainty while largely being close with your estimation. And so what I'm getting at is like, you know, Greg and I are fortunate. We get to go to a bunch of really cool fitness conferences and stuff with people that are really damn good at bodybuilding. And even if they're not a competitive bodybuilder, they're, they're clearly, they know what they're doing with their diet. I mean, Greg, how often do you sit down at a, you know, a table full of speakers and everyone pulls out their food scale? Literally never. I've never seen it. We we're... Actually, actually, no, no, no. Uh, that happened one time. Uh, at the Fitness Summit in Kansas City one year, Spencer Nadolski was prepping for his first bodybuilding show. And I don't know who he hired to do his nutrition, but I think his like meal plan for the day had, I don't know, 
X number of grams of bananas. Like it was, it was like a hundred grams of banana, I guess. And he pulled out a food scale and cut a banana in half and weighed it out to make sure he got the appropriate amount of banana. Um, and, and he realized after the fact that that was like way too obsessive and anal. And, and I think a lot of people have forgotten about it, but it, it became like a running joke for a few years, like n- not at his expense. Like Spencer's a great guy and he's like super good natured. So I think he thought it was as funny as anyone else did. Yeah. Um, but yes, I can think of exactly one time that someone pulled out a food scale to weigh out the appropriate fraction of a banana to consume. But that's that's the only time I've seen that happen. And it was out of character enough for that environment that everyone thought it was hilarious. Yeah. And in Spencer's defense, honestly, if I was prepping and I was within 18 weeks of a show, I would have done the same thing today. I'm oh, yeah. I mean, he... um. I, f- I felt really bad for him that whole weekend because we went to, uh, at the time, Oklahoma Joe's, now KC Joe's Barbecue, which uh, is is generally considered one of the best barbecue joints in the country. Uh, my hot take is I think Gates and LC's in Kansas City are both better than KC Joe's, but whatever, that's neither here nor there. We went there and everyone else was getting like ribs and brisket and pulled pork and whatever else. And... Uh, Spencer had a plate of just plain smoked turkey. And I mean, like it, it totally makes sense that he did that, but you could tell that he was dying a little bit inside because it was really good barbecue. And that was, that was the only thing on the menu that he could eat. Yeah. It's, it's tough, man. Like with prep. So prep is a kind of a whole different animal. Like if you're seven weeks out from a competition, I'm going to, I'm not going to be like, Hey, you really need to develop, develop a more uh comfortable relationship with food <laughs> and it's like no you just you gotta hit your metrics at that point but but I, I will say that most like most people that you consider like a really high level natural bodybuilder in the evidence-based world greg and i have dined with them sitting at tables many times and no one reaches for the scale they've basically all had enough tracking experience that they now are in a spot where they have their normal base diet they kind of mentally make some substitutions. You can keep an eye on things and kind of mentally track stuff um, w- without having to get out the scale and actually do really detailed macro tracking. So I think that is a good goal for people. But w- I, I, I think that a lot of people, if they, again, I don't mean to create a straw man if I am, but if you're going to say, I'm going to go purely based on appetite um, and just let my body do its thing, I think most people will tend to overeat. I think from the fact that that's not a perfectly calibrated system and the fact that there are hedonic and cultural societal aspects of food, I think most people, if they said, I'm going to give no thought to calories and just kind of let my body do its thing, I think most people, unless they eat a diet that's full of almost exclusively low energy density foods, I think most people are going to find that they overeat a little bit. Um unless they're one of those people who never has an appetite and then they're probably going to undereat a little bit. So I, I, I don't think it makes sense to completely detach from some kind of quant, uh, quantitative approach, but I also don't think people should be tracking for the rest of their life. Build up the skill set, learn to do it sensibly, be comfortable with some degree of estimation and just kind of work it in. One thing I would add as well, um, like just looping back to to the question and like what was explicitly asked 
so it did ask about intuitive eating, but specifically it was asking um, when you're training hard, that should upregulate hunger. So you'll eat enough for muscle growth. And for some people, that's the case. But overall, when you so there's not that that much research looking at the effects of resistance training on appetite. There was a study that was just published this month that was comparing um, high intensity, like lower volume training to kind of like moderate intensity, like almost bodybuilding style training, which one would assume would be the training that would be more beneficial for muscle growth. And what that study found was that the like moderate intensity, like bodybuilding style training actually suppressed appetite compared to nothing. Um, and, And you will probably be maybe a little hungrier the next day, but like acutely, uh, what I meant to say before, I got slightly ahead of myself. So there's not much research on uh, appetite regulation with resistance training. There is more on appetite regulation with like high intensity interval training, which may may be comparable because it probably works a lot of the same energy systems and, and maybe would have the same effects. And high-intensity interval training pretty reliably suppresses appetite for at least a couple hours. So I, I think that um, I think there's kind of two questions. One is like intuitive eating in general, and for that I I think Eric gave a really good answer. Then the second one is like intuitive eating in the context of getting hungry enough due to exercise that your body will eat more than it otherwise would to build muscle. And I think, if anything, the evidence actually runs counter to that. Um, like, high-intensity stuff generally causes some degree of appetite suppression. And one of the reasons why, if you look at, like, long-term weight maintenance research, uh, if you look at weight loss research, you tend to see, like, eh, exercise might help a little bit, but it doesn't really make a night and day difference for weight loss. Seems like Seems like nutrition is the main thing going on here. But uh, exercise is like super important for long-term weight maintenance. And one of the primary reasons why is like contrary to what one would expect, um, like moderate levels of exercise do actually cause some degree of appetite suppression. So being totally sedentary makes you hungrier than eating or than than doing some level of exercise. So, So I wouldn't, if you're trying to do intuitive eating for gaining weight and building muscle, I wouldn't rely on uh on training to make you hungry enough for that purpose and and i'm assuming given the fact that the person is asking this question they they are probably someone who does struggle gaining weight and and like for whom that wouldn't come naturally so i i think that if that's the case like it it may not be a bad idea to at least watch what you eat to to try to eat more um because i i wouldn't i wouldn't trust resistance training to to do the appetite work for you to to eat more if that isn't something that you already have experience with it coming naturally to you yeah and i do want to highlight the fact that when we look at that exercise and appetite research there's a big distinction between the acute response in the hours following the bout and any potential kind of makeup hunger occurring after that acute phase um And there, as you mentioned, there's also, when you look, there's a lot more cardio related, like aerobic, low intensity related literature than like high intensity stuff when it comes to like, 
usually people are looking at from a weight loss perspective of do people tend to replace the calories that they burned. And from that perspective, there's a ton of variability. Some people can very comfortably use cardio as a fat loss mechanism, low intensity cardio. Some people will almost perfectly replace the, the energy that they consumed, uh, you know, not, maybe not in the immediate meal after, but in the hunger ensuing later. And some people overcompensate. Some people do overcompensate. So there, there's so much variability there, but absolutely the, the, the takeaway point is if you're relying on some very reliable mechanism by which high intensity exercise is going to use hunger to tell you exactly how many calories you need to optimize muscle growth, it's just probably not going to work that way. All right. So Greg, there's a couple questions for you that are specifically about um, different aspects of exercise selection for a couple different exercises and choosing variations and where certain exercise variations might apply. So the first one is from Honest Fitness. And the question is, uh, what exercise would you use for mechanical tension slash overload for the chest when not doing the bench press? So, um, honestly, I don't think bench press would be one of my top exercises if someone was just choosing exercises for growing the pecs. I mean, obviously bench press is important. If you're a power lifter, it's literally a third of the sport. Um, but if someone was just like, Hey man, I want to grow my pecs. What exercises would you do? Bench press absolutely isn't a bad choice, but I think there are actually several exercises that would be um, better options. So in terms of like flat pressing exercises, I think dumbbell bench would probably be my go-to. The The main reason I would choo choose that over the bench press, um, two reasons actually. So one, uh, range of motion can be longer with dumbbell bench. Um, this probably wouldn't be really important for people who aren't rather barrel chested. Um, but for someone who especially benches with like a moderate to wide grip and has like a large rib cage, a bench press is, is a partial range of motion exercise for the pecs. Um, it is a fairly long range of motion exercise for the pecs, but you could certainly do more shoulder horizontal abduction. Um, so one for, for barrel chested people, just folks with big rib cages, um, dumbbell bench allows a longer range of motion, which is probably going to be beneficial for pec growth. Um, and it's also going to be more likely to be limited specifically by pec strength than the bench press will. So I think for a lot of people, bench press is a really good pec exercise, but for some people, like they're just a way more tricep dominant bencher, even, even with a fairly wide grip. Um, their triceps, obviously their pecs are still contributing, but their triceps can contribute very, very heavily to the bench press, um, due to the way that they can change, uh, like lateral forces. That would be something really confusing to just explain vocally. I wrote about it in, uh, the bench guide on the website, so if you're interested in like the difference in how bench press versus dumbbell bench can affect the triceps and how much the triceps can get into the movement, uh, check out the bench guide. I explain it in there. Um, but yeah, so dumbbell bench is, is going to be way more likely to be limited by the pecs. Um, 
You can also take the pecs through a longer range of motion in all likelihood because um, like the distance between your hands isn't locked in space. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think I think dumbbell bench is probably a, a preferable exercise for pec growth to the barbell bench. Um, so that would be high up on my list. If you want to do something with a barbell, I think low incline press is a really, really good option. Um, it helps you get a slightly longer range of motion, probably helps integrate your upper pecs a little bit more. Um, if you're still like arching your back a little bit and pulling your shoulder blades together, like if you're coming to this from some sort of powerlifting background, um, <laughs> like a, a low incline bench basically gets you to a pretty similar technique as like a flat bench that a bodybuilder would perform. <laughs> so it, it it lets you accomplish the same basic thing without having to get out of the bench setup that you prefer. Um, quick, quick question. When you say a low angle for the incline, how low are we talking? 30 at most, like 15 to 20% is ideal. Okay. Why? I was just curious. I thought a listener might want to know. And I, Oh yeah, f- fair enough. I, 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 as well. I'm not against like a regular 45 degree incline, but like... I've done a fair amount of incline. It's a exercise I tend to like, um, and just just the the degree to which you're getting your pecs into it versus front delts. I really think that low incline, like fifteen to thirty degrees, is a better option. Um, so I, I will admit my bias that probably contributed to my asking. I do tend to go a little bit higher than most. Mm-hmm. So. Not even like, I think there's like the typical kind of like 45 degree, I, I think is probably the setting a lot of people go with. Mm-hmm. I go a little higher than that, um, but I also do it unilaterally um, and really focus in on on getting the pec in the position I want it. I, I kind of maneuver my body like a circus dumbbell press almost. Yeah. Um, and, and the reason is if I do lower angles for me, I usually do my incline pressing in conjunction with another flat pec movement. Uh-huh. So I like to really, really, really focus in on that higher portion of the chest. So I was just curious. Oh, man. If I go even 45 degrees, but certainly over 45 degrees, I I just, it's just all front, front, uh, front delt. Yeah, I, I don't get that. Fair enough. Um, to each their own. To each their own. But yeah, so I, I would generally recommend if you want to mess around with a barbell probably low incline bench or just incline bench fucking play around with the angles and see what feels best for you um incline dumbbell also fantastic um i mean dumbbell bench dumbbell incline those would probably be my two go-tos for compound exercises and then um barbell incline is like a third option um, and then for, for other exercises, like the pec deck is great. The pec deck is, is one of a good pec deck and like a good pullover machine are my two favorite machines. If I, if I go train at like another gym and I scout it out and they have a good pullover and a good pec deck, I'm happy. Um, those are also the, the two exercises that I feel like characterize like 1991 bodybuilding. Like you're on the pec deck and you're on the damn pullover and you're killing it. Well, that's when it peaked. Yeah. They, they knew what they were doing. Um, so pec deck is great. Um, it, the, the, what's it called? The cam, like the thing that the, 
uh, like wire or like the strap is going around is shaped somewhat oblongly so it helps match the strength curve of your pec. Um, it's like with flies, obviously, they're hard at the bottom and super, super easy at the top. And the way a pec deck works, like A, just because it's machine resistance, um, and, and B, like the shape of the cam, it can help match the, the strength curve of your pecs a little bit better. So like flies are fine, but pec deck is just a better version of a fly, in my opinion. Um, and then as an exercise that that I think a lot of people don't think about, but that I think you probably shouldn't sleep on is uh, extended range of motion push-ups. I think are really, really good. Um, I think a lot of times, like eventually most people get strong enough that they can't get too much out of push-ups anymore um, just because of, like if you're, well, I wouldn't say a lot of people, but if you're binging like over double body weight, it, it's kind of hard to make push-ups hard. Like you you can do some work with band resistance and I think band resisted push-ups are great for most people. Um, but for like newer lifters and for people who bench, I would say below like one and a half times body weight, extended range of motion push-ups are awesome. Like you just get, if you're in a gym with bumper plates, you can just get like some bumper plate 45s and still go all the way down until your chest touches the floor and it's still just a damn push-up, but the range of motion is slightly longer. Um, I think those are awesome. Like, if I if I want to do, like, a burnout set at the end of a chest day, if I'm just, like, broing out and not doing powerlifting training, uh, extended range of motion push-ups, I, I find are a great burnout for me and a great, like, primary exercise for people with slightly lower bench presses. Big time. No, no would, would would you have anything to add tracks like are, are there any chest exercises that you just love that i didn't touch on no i mean so my my bench press is interesting because i bench with a very flat back and so my, i think compared to most people my my flat barbell bench is extremely pec dominant so i, I get a whole bunch of growth from that but i know they're asking if you're not doing the bench press um I do a lot of flat dumbbell. I do a lot of incline dumbbell. Um, I have not been doing a lot of pec deck lately because I struggle to find a good machine for it. You, you don't see them as much as you used to. Uh, one thing that I do really like, there's a, uh, a cable machine that's made by, I think, is it Life Motion or Life Fitness or something? They have a whole series of machines that are very cable driven, but they're still set up as if they're like a, a standalone machine. It's not just like a, a random pulley in the middle of the gym, mm -hmm. but um, they have a nice flat chest press that you can do flies on that I love. So um, if I am going to do a pec deck or a fly related movement, I do like it to be something with either a cable or like a cam pulley because uh, I, I think with dumbbells trying to do like a dumbbell fly variation there's just a huge portion of that range of motion where I'm, i don't have much going on yeah it's just completely wasted yeah so so i i think if you are going to go the the route with any kind of flies first of all make sure you're really every now and then my shoulders get upset if i do too much flying um so maybe keep an eye out for that and try to find a nice machine that you feel like you're actually working through the range of motion now there was another question about exercise selection somewhat uh, but the question was do weighted thrusts help out on the squat much 
Yeah, so, um, maybe, I mean, so, uh, here's my opinion on hip thrusts. I think that they're a really, really good exercise for glute hypertrophy. Um, like, some form of squat, some form of deadlift, and hip thrusts. Those would be, like, probably my top three for glute hypertrophy. Um, so, I think they can help the squat insofar as growing the glutes, kind of, you know, forming more contractile tissue in one of the primary movers of the squat, it's probably going to help the squat. Um, so I, I think it can be beneficial just from a glute hypertrophy perspective, um, but probably doesn't have that much just great direct carryover in terms of like the range of motion that hip thrusts are really, really training hard versus the range of motion where the hip extensors are really, really challenged in the squat. So you tend to see uh, force output. So like when the bar starts decelerating, you, you tend to see force output being the lowest in the squat uh, at or slightly above parallel. And then you tend to see what most people think of as the sticking point, like the point of minimum bar velocity, uh, a little bit higher than that. And so in that position, generally you're still in a pretty fair amount of hip flexion and if you've ever done a heavy hip thrust like you probably would have felt this it's not that hard to get the bar off the floor in a hip thrust but the movement gets pretty hard like right at lockout um so i i don't think it's doing much to train uh like the specific hip flexion range of motion where like hip extension is going to be challenged the most in the squat. So I think it can help the squat by helping you get a bigger booty. And then the bigger booty can then be trained uh, to develop strength through that particular range of motion. And, and that's good. But in terms of direct carryover, I don't think there's a ton of direct carryover from hip thrust to squats. I do, however, think hip thrust can be pretty helpful for the deadlift, especially for people who have a higher than normal sticking point. So normal sticking point, and I'm mostly thinking about conventional deadlift here. Um, although I guess it could apply to sumo as well if you're doing like wider stance hip thrusts. Um, it's just not something I've ever experimented with much because I've never had lockout issues sumo. Um, but for, for a conventional deadlift, a lot of times like people are going to miss like low to mid shin, like either they fail at the floor, like they can get the bar off the floor, but fail pretty well below their knees. But here I'm thinking about people who fail either like maybe just slightly below knee height to any point above knee height. Uh, I think hip thrusts do help a lot at training uh, deadlift lockout strength. And of course, just growing a bigger booty to help with the entire deadlift. Um, but, I, but I do think they're like specifically helpful for training the glutes and, and the hip extensors to be strong through that range of motion. Um, so for people who do uh, tend to miss deadlifts in, in the top half of the range of motion, I think that, that weighted hip thrusts are indirectly helpful, again, from just helping their booty get bigger, but also directly helpful by like helping to improve strength through that range of motion. So uh, I think it can help both lifts, but it's probably for most people going to help deadlift more than squat directly. You know, I think this is actually the the most times we've used the specific term booty 
on a single episode. That's a big deal. Yeah, I um I was doing some some SEO research and uh seems like if you're in the fitness space, you got to be talking about booties and I haven't found a natural point to work in the phrase peach gang yet. Um but but that's that's one that we should probably work on targeting in future episodes. Is that a word that people actually use? Um it's like it's a pretty popular hashtag on Instagram. It's peach just like gang. Peach gang, yeah. Okay. I mean, I get it. I understand yeah, what they're getting at. Booty shots. Um yeah. Anyway, so uh we got one more question. Eric and I are both going to answer and uh this is the one that's going to bring us home. So, Joey Eckholm asks, uh, how much evidence and research would it take for you to implement new findings into your own practice? One study with a large effect size or multiple replicated studies? Uh, how much how much research do you need to try something out, either with yourself or with your clients? So I'll start, and, and then certainly, Greg, you can chime in uh, with probably a violently different approach and kind of <laughs> put me down as you like to do. So my viewpoint on this, I think I always felt the same way, but I struggled to visualize it until I wrote my first meta-analysis. Now, whenever I look at a body of research, my brain sees it as a funnel plot. And so th the question is, do you care about a single study with a large effect size or multiple replicated studies? What I would like to see, if you, th the reason I bring up a funnel plot is what you'll find... Um, in research with small samples is looking at the same intervention. It's not particularly rare to wildly overestimate the size of the effect. It's also, it should be equally not rare to completely underestimate the size of the effect. So if you tell me like, hey, this is the first study on a topic. There were seven people in each group and the effect size looked pretty big. I'd say, cool, but let's wait and see, you know, if we do a bigger study, is the effect size similarly really big? Or do we find that the effect size is approximately zero? And then the next small study finds that <laughs> the effect size was negative big, you know? And, and then we start to see like, okay, the big sample size, we or the big effect size we saw in one small study, it was probably just sampling error. Sometimes with small groups of people, really weird things happen. Um, but they should happen equally in the positive and the negative direction. Now, another thing that you, you should look at or that I look at with a body of literature is assuming all the studies were done in a fairly similar way with equally rigorous testing procedures in place. If all the small studies show a big effect and the big studies show basically no effect or a very minimal one, I'm going to lean toward the big studies because they're a little bit less prone to these really volatile responses that we see in super small samples. So um, to answer the question, one, one little study with a large effect size is not enough to get me super excited. It's enough to get me interested. Or, or there, there's another similar situation where like all of the really well-controlled studies don't show much and all of the more poorly controlled studies show large effects in one direction or the other. Exactly. Yeah. So... That, that's why I put that caveat, assuming they were all done equally well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but that's an assumption that's never true. <laughs> but in any case, it's a great point. If you're looking at the studies, you want to say, how does the sample size seem to affect the result? 
How does the quality of the study affect the result? And then you can start making some inferences. But if it's a brand new body of research, I will concede. If there's like two studies out on a topic, they're done equally well. They're both pretty small samples. That's pretty much how this goes in our field. You get a couple small sample studies out and you say, wow, there, it appears that there's either somewhere between no harm and a huge benefit. And this is very easy to implement. Yeah, I'm, I might be likely to just give it a shot on my own, see what happens. Um, again, in many cases, what we're looking at is something where the stakes are low. It's like this could be a really, you know, high reward. But let's say this is no better than normal, then really no harm done. So that's kind of how I approach it is what's the risk? What's the potential benefit? And then you kind of filter that through what's the quality of the evidence. So I... Uh... I agree with all of that. Um, I, I think that the issue of the stakes is is an important thing to keep in mind. So, for example, um, a, a recent study, relatively small, found that doing um, like low intensity static stretching between sets of a given exercise helps improve hypertrophy. So, you know, you're doing some dumbbell bench, you, you do a set. And then during, like between that set and the next set, you do some fairly light stretching for your pecs, uh, and that increased muscle growth relative to just resting between sets. Um, that's something that you know doesn't take much to implement. Uh, most people are going to be resting between sets; like it's not going to be hugely inconvenient unless someone traditionally just does like huge circuit training type stuff. Um, so it's easy to implement. If anything, there may be ancillary benefits to it. Like it's going to keep you focused on doing something physical in the gym and not just like checking your phone and kind of zoning out between sets. Um, so, you know, maybe it's beneficial. It doesn't really seem like there's much of a downside. So, you know, I see a small study. It's statistically significant. I think the effect size was moderate. Like it didn't make a night night and day difference, but Stakes are incredibly low, really easy to implement. Like, sure, I don't really need to see a second study on that because, like, if it's wrong, like, who cares? It's not going to be bad, you know? Um, versus if I saw a similar type deal with a new supplement, then, you know, you have several other layers you need to get through. So someone's going to need to pay money for that. So, you know, are, is it worth it to potentially recommend someone buy something that could end up worthless and then they just wasted their money? There's issues with supplement purity and maybe being spiked with stuff that could make people fail a drug test. So would you necessarily recommend a supplement that, you know, could have um, unintended downsides for someone that... Uh, that there's not like a robust body of research showing that like, yes, this is really, really good stuff that you should recommend. So like the stakes are a little bit different there. Um, so you could have the same level of evidence for both of those things. And I'd be more likely to recommend the, um, you know, the, the light stretching between sets than the new mystery supplement, um, because the stakes are slightly different. One other thing that I would kind of throw into the mix though, is um so like i read research and write about research professionally like that's i i do still coach but like the research side of things is 
mostly what pays my bills these days. Um, but I'm still, I am still like very much a bro at heart. Um, like that's, that's what got me obsessed enough with this stuff to get into it as a profession in the first place. And so another like filter for me is like, does it kind of match gym wisdom? Um, if there's like a practice that has never been studied before and the first study comes out and there's like a, a moderate effect in favor of the stuff that like strong and jacked people have been saying for 20 years, my bias is kind of like, well, okay, like that's probably legit. If it's the opposite and it's like all of the big and strong people have been saying the opposite of what this study found for the past 20, 30 years, I'm really, really going to want to wait till that finding gets replicated because it's absolutely not that gym wisdom is 100% infallible. It's definitely not. Like it is wrong from time to time. Um, but generally, if I see research matching practice, I'm like, okay, I am going to to give this research a little more rope and assume that it's right. If I see research contradicting practice, then I'm like, you know, if it's just the first study, I'm not going to say all of the practice that people have been doing for the last few decades is wrong and this research is right. I'm also not going to say this research is is wrong and biased and like funded by big whatever I don't like and that practice is right. In that case, it's more like, okay, I am going to, I am going to need to wait and see more research before, you know, throwing out 20 years of gym wisdom. So whether or not the findings of the research match the stuff that people who seem to know what they're talking about have been previously saying, like that's, that's another filter for me. And I think a lot of times in those scenarios where there's a study that comes out that like flies in the face of conventional wisdom, a lot of times you can just look at the study, really take it in and start to speculate about what aspects of the de- the design might have caused that. Yeah. Like yeah. It, it's, it's typically not like, wow, they brought in a huge sample of super well-trained guys, controlled everything, and everything we've been doing is wrong. You know, there's usually some methodological considerations where you can start to figure out like, okay, here are some plausible explanations how the conventional gym wisdom has a grain of truth to it, but this study failed to show that particular uh, concept. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, in, in the the big, big misses for, for gym wisdom type stuff, I think it's often stuff that's like kind of trivial. So for example... Like, eating tilapia thins the skin. Like, eh, no, it probably doesn't. But someone's eating tilapia before a bodybuilding show, unless they're allergic to tilapia, like, that's not going to hurt them. So, like, you know, it, it's it's often stuff like that that is found to really be unimportant. An example from the training side of things is, like, every lifter and every sport coach and every, like, weight coach or whatever 20 years ago if you attempted to do anything physical, whether that be run, whether that be lift weights, whether that be wipe your butt without doing like 30 minutes of calisthenics and like stretching every muscle in your body, uh, they would say, what are you doing? You're going to die and get hurt and kill yourself. And like now we know, especially like the static static stretching side of things, like, eh, probably doesn't matter. Um, probably not going to do anything good for you. Probably not going to do anything bad for you. Um, assuming you're not doing super intense static stretching and then 
two seconds later doing a maximum vertical jump like it if it's part of a warm-up and you do a bunch of static stretching like by the end of the rest of the warm-up stuff you do that static stretching has probably had no effect whatsoever it's like it's kind of a waste of time but ultimately it's trivial because it's not helping people but it's also not hurting hurting people um and now like research contradicts that pretty strongly um like that you should do a bunch of static stretching before exercise so like that's another example where it's trivial like it wasn't negatively affecting people so yeah i i i tend to think that um it's either something like that where like the gym wisdom may not be helping people but it's not really hurting them either uh or it's what eric mentioned where uh you know, it, it could have to do with some details of the population used or how the study was set up. All right. Well, I think that does it for this uh, this week's episode. Like I said, next week, we got a great episode coming. Uh, really cool interview with Alex Cagliari-Turner. Um, really nice episode lined up. So thanks, as always, for joining us, and we will see you next week. And if you're interested in getting your questions answered on a Q&A episode of the Stronger by Science podcast... Uh, you can fill out our Google form. The URL for that is tiny.cc slash sbsqa, uh, all lowercase. That will be linked underneath this episode, or we specifically used a URL sh shortener, so it would be easy for people to type in after they hear this. So again, that is tiny.cc slash sbsqa, all lowercase. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.